0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly. Written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Akemeni Uwan, Michelle Higgins, and Christina Edmondson are the women behind Truce Table. And while we have an episode with Christina coming later in the season, I cannot wait for you to hear that, you are in for a treat right now because Akemeni and Michelle, welcome to Viral Jesus. And although there is no
2: Black church without Black women... (laughs) And because we fill those pews and we fund the church and we do all of these things, I think that because we do these things, people are not able to see our vulnerability.
1: From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. In an article by Catherine Freeman for Christianity Today titled, The Hidden Figures of the Church, she cites a survey by the American Bible Society that says African Americans are more avid Bible readers than any other ethnic group, with 69% turning to scripture multiple times a year, compared to a smaller number of whites at 44% and Hispanics at 52%. Here, I'm going to read you a quote by Catherine, and it says this, Black women often serve as the spiritual center for our families and regularly rank among the most devout demographics in the country. According to the Pew Research Center, Black women are most likely to believe in God with absolute certainty at 83%, pray daily at 79%, and attend church weekly at 52%. End quote. Black women are major contributors to their communities, churches, and homes, and yet they are largely erased from conversations about church or even about race. Our guest today created a podcast and wrote a book to help recenter center black female experiences called Truce Table. In 2021, Truce Table was nominated and named the best black religion spirituality podcast by the Black Podcasting Awards. They are Black Christian women who love truth and seek it out wherever it leads them. They share their perspectives on politics, race, culture, entertainment, and gender, which are filtered through an accessible yet robust Christian theological framework. Truth Table has been ranked among Apple's top 200 religion and spirituality podcasts, and it has over 3 million downloads. They have a new book, Truth Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Well, I am so excited to have you both with me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Kevin, talk to me a little bit about what went into the decision to make this book.
2: You know, it's a, uh, like I, said, I was like, what didn't go into this? My goodness, it's been a... Listen, this this there takes a lot of labor to get to write a book, Heather. You know, yes. I'm like nobody, I feel like nobody told us though, like what it was going to cost. And so, <laughs> but what happened was that we—I uh, was approached by an editor at uh, Penguin about writing a book, bu- my own solo book, and I said, like, ah. I have an idea. It's not quite ready yet. You know, when you're just still turning it over. Um, but then she was like, you know, what about a book for Truth Table? And a couple of publishers did approach Truth Table about a book and we were like, ah, you know, um, so we were trying to weigh those things and costs and what it would cost for us to stop, you know, what we're doing in our individual ministries to sit down and write a book. Right, just, right. Yet, And so, paying, so um, the editor reached out and we were like, okay, we kicked it around again. And then the pandemic began and Everybody started pivoting and it just made sense for us to take that time. uh, Well, we're still in a pandemic, but, you know, but to take that time during the first season of the pandemic to, okay, let's let's write a book. Let's put our thoughts into uh, an actual book. And so uh, so, yeah, so we got our deal in um, summer of 2020. Okay. here we are.
1: And here we are. And you guys have had so much success with the podcast. And now I'm I'm sure this book is going to be super successful. Can you talk to me a bit, Michelle, about when you guys came up with the title, Truth Table, what is the meaning behind that? Where does it come from?
3: I think initially we were kicking around receipts for the podcast. This (laughs)
2: was... (laughs) I actually like that. Okay. (laughs) But then there is a receipts
3: podcast. So, so. so, you know, we didn't, they, you know, they beat us to it. Um, but naming the book directly after the show right. and then adding on this idea of musings really helps to. Uh, situate the reader into a context. If you're new to Truth Table, if you don't know about the podcast, um, then you can still settle into the book knowing that these are Black women's musings under three particular headings. If you are familiar with the podcast, you'll hear some content. And honestly, we're answering questions that people have asked us over the past couple of years um, doing, you know, various episodes, but much of our content can be settled in these three headings um, of life, love, and liberation. And I don't, you know, I I think it just worked out perfectly that we would name the book and then give it this um, really nice subcaption so that uh, people feel and know that that subtitle is us giving you a little extra warning, like this is not going to be all disorganized, um, but also, so it's not going to be, you know, don't look at it as a textbook unless you feel like using it as such. Don't think of it as a Bible study. It's, it's what we are feeling. It's our stories. It's very theological, <laughs> but there's a lot of biography
1: in it. And you know well. what? I've been going through it for the last week and it's extremely conversational too. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that. And I think you guys did a really good job at hitting all these different female experience topics. So I want to go into some of that. I'm going to start with you, Michelle. You say in your chapter, you have the section on protest, that you were nervous to share with your church community that you were supportive of the protests that were going on during Mike Brown. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it looks like, what you're talking about in that chapter to have protests as a part of your spiritual discipline?
3: Yeah, so uh, the experience of sensing the power of the Holy Spirit in an event or uh, some kind of space outside of a congregational worship setting is almost like, oh no, is this right? Is it okay? Even Mm. though... You know, in the Reformed theology, which both Akimini and I are degreed in, uh, we understand common grace means that the Holy Spirit can impact and interact with you anywhere. That's right. Um, But culturally... I was immediately nervous because I held the position, I held the title of director. I was a music director, a worship and advocacy director at an um, evangelical church at the time. I just knew that culturally it would not be okay for me to come into church and say, I felt the Holy Ghost move from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, learning how to stand up to police, learning how uh, to cry out for people that are, are usually on the bottom of the system or usually blamed for crime, um, people that are usually jailed, you know, without any recourse and folks that a a lot of, honestly, evangelical Christians um, would look at and blame for their own deaths, Um, you know, sanctioned, state-sanctioned deaths. So those are the things that kept me from being excited to share. I, I do believe that my witness became no less of a protest in its own way. And that's why I needed to go back and to search the stories of Jesus, the words of Jesus, yeah. to see how even he, in the presence of his church folks, um, boldly did a protest that turned out to be for everybody's benefit.
1: Like many, you have, actually, I think it's the first chapter and you say in there, You know, this is the one I was the most nervous to write when we started assigning chapters. And it's a chapter where your section is on colorism that you're talking about. And I want to read to you a line that you say in there. You say, how is it that I have been saved for over 15 years and a member in a variety of different black churches, but have never heard one sermon about colorism. Talk to us about what colorism is and why you think it's important that we have conversations about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was definitely, um, that was a hard chapter for me to uh, write uh, and to, yeah, just to access. Ironically, it's not the first one I wrote. Okay, (laughs) okay. I couldn't access it. It was really difficult for me to access it because of my own um, history of colorism, my own experience with it as um, being a dark-skinned Black woman living in America. Um, so I think, oh, so colorism, sorry. (laughs) What colorism is, is it's a phenomenon that happens within, um, well, actually within various ethnic groups, I would say, but non, non non-white ethnic groups. And obviously in this case, I'm talking about black folks. And so, um, where, uh, darker skin, uh, individuals are discriminated against in, um, ways that are punitive um, over against light-skinned people. So people that are actually lighter tend to be um to get more privileges, more benefits, are treated better, if you will. Um, so and I have some statistics and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some, some citations in there about how, say, for instance, the darker skinned women actually get um longer prison sentences in comparison to lighter skinned, you know, mm-hmm. inmates or darker skinned girls um get greater punishment in school than say light lighter skin uh, girls. And then, so it's not even just skin tone, but there's also texturism, right? So somebody that has a looser curl pattern might be treated better than somebody who has a tighter curl pattern for their hair, right? Um, featureism: somebody who has a wide nose or big lips will be treated um, in ways that are punitive and more discriminatory than those who have um, features that are more European, right? So wh- whoever is a little bit closer you know, to Mm. what a European standard of beauty is, quote unquote, (laughs) I'm using air quotes, um, they get (laughs) better treatment. So that's Mm -hmm. what colorism is in a nutshell. Um, So yeah, sorry. And you were asking me. uh, Yeah. And uh, why do you think that's an important addition to
1: have in this conversation?
2: Well, yeah, I, I do. I think it's really, really important that that it's not enough to be, I think I say it in the book, it's not enough to be anti-racist. You got to be anti-colorist too, Mm -hmm. because if we don't understand um, the layers of oppression, that it's not just racism, you know, that it's not just that, that there is colorism that also informs the way that in this case, Black people, you know, are treated in this country, then we are we're really going to, to miss like some of the ways that we can begin to do some repair um, and to be, begin to really affirm people. You know, what Mm -hmm. would it mean for me to hear my pastor, any pastor have said you're dark and beautiful, but you know, shame on those, you know, who would want to make you be ashamed of the fact that you're dark to make you ashamed of the fact that your lips are big, to make you ashamed of the fact that your nose is wide and broad and whatever, you know, um, whatever the the thing is, the hang up, right? Where people are discriminating against you uh, on. I, that would be so powerful to yeah. have heard, you know? And so I had to do a treatment on colorism. It, it's so pervasive and such a big issue in our community. I just, I couldn't not do it. And I know how it's impacted me in some very, legitimate um, in quantifiable ways.
1: And we know, we know statistically, this is true. The first time I started really looking into it, I think is after Meghan Markle um, did the Oprah interview. I wrote an article about this for Newsweek because um, I was reading a bunch of the statistics after that, when they were asking her how dark they thought the baby would be or yes. something like that, which... Mm-hmm. And so why do you think it is in the Black community that there's this resistance to that conversation? I mean, I don't know
2: that there's really a resistance. I do think it, it I feel like it comes up every couple of months, to be quite honest. Okay. I, do, I do think we had the conversation. I think that that we don't get beyond the conversation mm. <laughs> sometimes. Now, I do think that we don't, we don't hear it in the church, though. That's mm-hmm. why I, I will make a distinction. I think that we do actually talk about colorism, but do we move past talk? That I have not really seen. Right to really begin to like, okay, how can we really begin to make some repair and really in some tangible ways begin? You know, to um, you know, to dismantle um, um, colorism in our community. That I have not heard the practical. On that now, in the church, I haven't now in the church. I don't think it's talked about, mm. but it is. It happens. It's pervasive. Right. You know, and right. I've seen some of those, those historical um, examples of how that's happened um, in the church. I, I think that sometimes people don't have. And sometimes I think people don't know how to enter the conversation, and they don't know. I don't think that they read scripture from a lens where they can actually see that. Oh, there's some themes of colorism actually popping up here. Not that the not that the Bible condones colorism. No, no, no. But I do think there like I I raise up in the book instances where Mm -hmm. people are remarking about their dark skin, Mm -hmm. you know, and feeling ugly or Mm -hmm. not lovely because they are dark, right? Mm -hmm. And so because scripture is describing that, not prescribing. But describing yes. that. And so um, so I, I just don't think people always read scripture with sometimes they read scripture with a sanitized lens. You know, obviously this is kind of from our Western context, but I think sometimes we miss a lot of what's in the canon, to be honest. And so I think that we, it's like, okay, let's let's begin again, let's go back, let's revisit this. And so, in some ways, that's that's what truth table is doing. Actually, we're revisiting a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of texts, some sacred texts that have been preached. 50, 11 different ways. right? And we're like, uh, wait, did you consider this? Because this is also happening in the text. And so, so that's what we're kind of, we're that's what we're doing, re-engaging um, yeah. scripture from the lens of, of, of Black women. These are our musics, the lens <laughs> of Black women, but it's
1: our lens. You know, but all of you do, but s- specifically the two of you and the next couple of questions I'm going to ask um, are really vulnerable in this book and sharing your own personal stories. Um, you, Echamini talking about singleness, Michelle opening up about your divorce. And as somebody who serves a lot in women's ministry specifically, I was really happy that you guys did that because in women's ministry, these are the conversations that women want to see God in, right? A lot. And there's this disconnect sometimes in our faith and what we're experiencing in our real lives. Michelle, you open up about your divorce in the book. What do you think is a message you think Black divorced women need to hear in their faith communities about this?
3: Yeah. Well, thank thank you for that question. I think it's one that um, can be difficult to answer, not only because of the stumbling blocks that we have culturally, um, but because of the way that we have interpreted um, what, what God wants for people, what God wants for marriage. And I do believe that uh, to pedestal marriage as the best and closest way to experience the love of Jesus is to ignore The full story of Christ and the full story of Christ is um, that the law, the commandment, the bond that Jesus gave us is literally to sacrifice self as the greatest love um, for friendship. And so I think that for divorced women, especially divorced black women. There's a strong message that I can only hope all three of our lives um, deliver, and that is um, that you will always be the bride of Jesus and your source, your experience of love um, is vast. It is immeasurable. It is as big as the Trinity is. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there are going to be hard times. I mean, I still go through difficulties. Um, I'm an ordained pastor now. It does not stop people from talking about the fact that I'm divorced. Mm I still go through tons of difficulties between just being single, but also being single because of a divorce and uh, a lot of the interpretations of scripture around uh, marrying a divorced person, putting you in danger of adultery. And these are things that we throw at each other or we choose to sit and attempt to challenge one another around and my if I had a word to give our sisters who are going through who are contemplating who are not sure of or even have a friend that they don't know how to comfort who is in the midst of or or on the other side of divorce is that God sees Every single thing that you can't get yourself in front of right now. And the more that you lean into and feel surrounded by God, the more you will become acquainted with a savior who is acquainted with grief. And the more you will begin to lean on, sometimes it's new friends, friends that you didn't know you would make through a very particular type of pain that often old friends have a hard time entering into. It's very difficult for people to watch a sacred relationship crumble. It can also be an opportunity to be vulnerable and forgiving before folks even open their mouths. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. point it to women who are big and pregnant and getting rubbed up when they go to Walmart. You can't shop at Target without somebody touching you. Now, are you going to touch a lady? who does not appear to have a, a pregnant belly no um divorces that awkward subject that everybody thinks they have a Bible study on. Mm. And so how are we becoming more and more and more like Jesus, who chose to go to these desolate places to commune with his father when the crowds were too much, and who chose to still still forgive, still heal, still stay among the people who really needed his witness, despite the fact that his witness cost him so much. When, when I minister to divorced women, especially Black women, I tell them, that your struggles, your pain, your suffering, Jesus already died and rose again, so that it would not kill you. And so there mm. is no guilt in you having to go away. You know, I said in the chapter, I was made to take sabbatical and I didn't think that it was smart, but you know, on the other side of it, I'm like, you got to disappear. You got to disappear. Mm. And I truly believe that we are terrified that the reality of our changing lives is going to hurt us. It's going to damage us to the point where no one will respect us again, especially if you're the one filing. That hurts a different way. Mm. Um, but what, what is factual is that God will always see you as both their bride and a precious baby girl who deserves the kind of protection that sometimes Black women have to get on their own. And so leaning into that and really Finding comfort in the story of a savior who knows what it's like to need community and be abandoned at the worst moment. Um, and still to go into a time and a space of protection um, in the room, in the house of of his own origins. So I do, I encourage women to connect to their origins, um, to connect to the fact that God made them, God is their dad, um, Jesus is their brother and savior, and the Holy Spirit is within them, moving them, and to trust, to really trust that even though mistakes may be made or they may have something to confess around their own divorce. Um, there is nothing that the Lord won't redeem um, for his daughters.
1: And what would you say? I'm I'm very sensitive to this topic. My sister, um, who's my best friend in the whole world, married Yay. the only boy she'd ever kissed. And that marriage ended mm. and totally like just rocked her. Her only dream was to get married. And so it just right. rocked her right. entire world. Yeah. And so what do you say to the woman who's in the midst of this right now mm-hmm. and is like, God being my husband isn't enough right? Like that sounds like a really nice thing to say, but in reality, I'm, I feel totally, you know what I mean? Forsaken Mm -hmm. right now. What do you Mm -hmm. say, or what advice would you give to those of us who are maybe going through that with our sister or with our friend or in the midst of it ourselves? What do you do with that feeling of this doesn't feel like it's enough?
3: Yeah. Yeah. There is an experience of being born again, Uh, that that makes me often think about uh, this idea of being born again spiritually that happened when you called on the name of Jesus, but being born again in ways that, and I talked about this even in my protest chapter, in ways you didn't think you needed on the other side of Mm. being saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm singing praise songs and clapping and playing the tambourine and running around the church. And here I am needing to be converted, about how high and holy marriage was to me, Mm. culturally. Mm. Now, when you're born again to realize that you call on the name of a savior who, if he was married, nobody thought it was important enough to tell us, chances are high that he never was. And then you have the stories of many of his followers saying, be careful that you don't hold people above God. That's Mm -hmm. the have the new Testament. Um, and certainly most of the stories in the old Testament. So, uh, but what I feel, uh, is one of the most difficult times in learning a self respect to dignify self is literally the experience that Nicodemus called impossible. And there is no better word than to realize how impossible it is to de-center marriage, to un- pedestal marriage as part of what is enough for you. Mm. There's no other word that that I can use to describe it. Mm. Is it beautiful? Would some of us, many of us call it crucial? Yeah. But when we get to that enoughness, it does take being crawling back up into God's womb to be born Mm. out of the womb of the Trinity from whence you actually came. The birthplace of your soul. You got to go back there to realize, as you were born, you are enough. Um, Think about the costliness of losing friends. You can't imagine, can't imagine how painful that is to lose a best friend. But we very rarely compare that kind of loss to the loss of marriage, and so an opportunity for rebirth. Including the pain and the crisis of going back through the birth experience of saying, wow, I have to take my thoughts about marriage back to infancy. And at the same time, being fully welcomed to grieve in the presence of God. That's going to do two really important things for women. Um, It's going to keep us from jumping into the dating pool, which is really just toilet water sometimes. (laughs) It's going to keep us from diving too deep. You know what I'm saying? Going on too many dates with, um, you know, folks that really should be our brother in Christ. You know? Right, right. <clears throat> so knowing, knowing who you are, knowing yeah. that word, knowing the struggle of knowing what is really enough and what you really just desiring, even a godly desire can come second to realizing That You have to grow once again. You have to grow all over again. Precious, hungry caterpillar um, into knowing that you are enough because you are in God.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And, when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org viraljesus today.
1: Hemony, you have a chapter in the book on singleness called Hidden in Plain Sight, A Single Black Woman's Manifesto. And in your segment, you say this, this is a direct quote. You say, although women's lives and livelihoods are no longer bound to their marital status, I consider us modern day widows because as single black women, we are especially vulnerable to and impacted by the oppressive systems described above. As such, Where possible and needed, I believe the church requires a more expansive use of the benevolent fund, which is typically reserved for the widows, single mothers, the bereaved, struggling college students, and the sick and shut-in. But this also needs to include single Black women, our modern-day widows. Talk to me a bit about how you think the church can better serve single Black women.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you lifted that up. One of my... Interventions, and so <laughs> I think it's really important. And there's been a, I think, an ongoing theme, in history, period. But it's really come to the fore in the past couple of weeks um, with the controversy that happened at I think the Golden Globes when the woman uh, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> um, you know, unfairly attacked Serena and Venus Williams, mm-hmm. trying to undermine their accomplishments, right? Right. Then we witness um, Ketanji uh, Brown Jackson, our mm-hmm. soon-to-be Supreme Court, <laughs> first uh, Black woman Supreme Court judge. We saw her um, having to take these merciless, racist, and misogynistic attacks on her character, on her um, on her aptitude and competence, even though she's the most qualified out of mm-hmm. all of this U.S. Supreme Court judges. Then we witness the Oscars, right? the Oscars. Okay? Y'all know what happened? <laughs> and um, again, you know, all of these themes of black women um, being almost backed in a corner, um, unprotected,
1: yeah,
2: um, uncared for, um, assailed, simply because they're black women honestly. It's it's not because they don't have the pedigree. It's not because they don't have the skill. It doesn't, but simply really because they are Black women. And so we move through the world, um, you know, and and, and as Zora Neale Hurston is like, we are treated like the mules of this world. Mm. And although there is no Black church without Black women, (laughs) and because we fill those pews and we fund the church and we do all of these things, I think that That because we do these things, people are not able to see our vulnerability. Yeah. They're not able to see that we need to be protected just like everybody else. They don't see that maybe this person is in need. We, You know, we we have that saying, you know, like, I don't look like what I've been through. Right. You know, in the Black church, we got that, you know, I'm blessed, you know, and highly (laughs) favored, but I don't look like what I've been through. Like you know, what I'm saying I can't tell it all. <laughs> I mean, like, we got all these things that actually do kind of. I'm not gonna lie; they do aid in our like protection. Like, oh, I got this, I got this. But, but a lot of us don't really got got this mm-hmm. right behind closed doors. Crying us, we're, we're crying ourselves to sleep at night. We're tossing in our beds because we have deep anxiety you know about the responsibilities and weights that we have you know we're caring for other family members sending money to other other family members we're you know black women we're aunties we're taking care of nieces and nephews chosen children right because of what i laid out earlier in the chapter yeah correct and so so you know there's some very real things and then and then just obvious just the um the financial the potential financial insecurity due to the absence of marriage Mm-hmm. Which is also a reality. Not for every Black woman, but that, that is also a reality. And I can speak as a single Black woman and I can tell you how my life would be um, um, improved if I was married to the right <laughs> uh, godly Black man. Um, uh, but you know, it can also go way south if you're married to the wrong person. Right. But let's just say, we're talking about the right godly person <laughs> that, <laughs> that God has for you. I can tell you how my life would be improved. I could tell, I would have five books by now. If I could do what my counterparts do, mm. right? A lot of them are married. A lot of them have that stability. And so mm-hmm. they can do that. They're not on their own. They're not having to, you know, hustle, mm-hmm. really, to make ends meet and do those things. You know, so I feel that, you know, and that's, and that's to be very transparent. And so I do think the church would be served by asking, are you okay, sis? Yeah. And wait for the answer, and then ask specifically health wise: Are you good? Have you had a physical? Do you need somebody to take mm. you physical? Did you have a? Did you have, have? Have you had any health scares come up? Do you need support for that? You know, financially, not to not to count your coins. <laughs> you know, we we haven't been checking checking the ties and offering roster. That's not <laughs> what I'm asking because you. Okay, but no, we're asking: How are you financially? Are you okay? Are your needs met? Do you need something? Do you need a job? You know, asking those questions. You know, sometimes we we go into church or or, we, or we're online. You know, everything is a little bit in flux still, right? Uh, and we don't know people's interior lives. They come in, they got their tambourine, they clapping, they crying, they got their hands up, they going up to the altar, but you don't know. And then they leave and then they come back, but you don't know what they're dealing with. You do not know what they're dealing with. Is there... um deeply entrenched loneliness that this person might be dealing with. Like, you know, asking the questions and then being prepared Mm. to not only hear the answer, but to be the answer. Yes. And the church has to be able to be the answer. You know, and I don't want to... And I I, I, I honestly think the government has a role to play too, you know, which is an argument that uh, Dr. Diane M. Stewart makes in her book, Black Woman, Black Love, which I cited, in this chapter, yes, but, but when the government fails, the church does have to step in. And there's some things where the church should just actually be stepping in This is because this is what we do, right? Because mm-hmm. this is what we see in scripture. And so, so I wanted to be able to lift up some interventions in some practical ways where a single Black woman can feel supported, you know, speaking as a single Black woman who loves the church and has been saved for quite some time now, you know, um, and just from my own observations um, on ways that things can change for us, for the better.
1: So good. So many things covered in this book. The book is Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. You can get that wherever books are sold. I want to ask both of you, I am doing this new thing this season where I ask people online, if you got to sit down with my guests, what would you ask them? And Beth Moore, wants to know, she says, Heather, I think it would be fun to ask them one thing beyond cliche they all agree on and one thing beyond like food that they don't agree on. I think leadership is in part exemplifying successful and fulfilling relationships with people with whom we both agree and disagree. Can you think of something that you agree on and something that you disagree on and yet you're still friends? Oh, that was a good one, wasn't it?
2: That's a good question. Oh my gosh,
3: And what up? <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, we, there's there's a lot. that's like one one thing that I mean, I don't I don't know that it's cliche. I know it's trendy, but um, I know that it's real for us is to to honor Black women um, in their in our fullness, uh, and that for me at least, you know, has a deep representation for Truth Table. You know, where we um, we don't shy away from playing favorites and we say this podcast this show our work and now the book um is by black women and for black women and that standing room section only you know that's never been a point of contention or discussion you know it's just never been a, not even a blink of an eye like so many places where black women don't have an opportunity to sit down truth table can often be a coffee table because you need an easy chair you need one of those nice, you know, little elegant looking couches, that's velvet, you know, maybe that <laughs> that cobalt blue or the emerald green, you know, the trendy couches right now. So truth table sometimes can be it can be a banqueting table. It can be a coffee table. It can be one of those side tables where you set the grease. you are about to line some edges um, or get your edges snatched either way. <laughs> but um, we we have never disagreed on the standing room section being always open. Um, But truth table being always for Black women first.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think our agreement and disagreement even lies in that. um, Not only do we want to honor Black women, you know, it's it's a space built by Black women and for Black women, um, which obviously I think is beautiful because other, other people can stand around and and listen in on conversations that you don't usually get to listen to. Okay. And so so and you can really learn from our vantage point, but but I think uh in honoring, I think where you really see honor is where you where you do disagree. Right, we like, mm-hmm. okay, don't agree. Like we had a whole episode about um abolition. We don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's Abolition. We don't like you know so so we interviewed. Michelle, okay, help us to understand. I think myself and Christina, we know that there needs to be a change though. Like, you know, I would say that even for me, I'm, I'm beyond reform, but I'm short of abolition, which I, I explained on that episode. I can't, oh, ask an abolitionist. That's the title of that episode. And we took, Michelle, Michelle was like, y'all took me to town. Like y'all just kept on asking these hard questions. So we don't agree. Yeah, they wore me out. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have a similar political bet, but we don't, we don't agree on every political issue. We just don't, you know? And so I think that's one that comes to mind, but I think where the honor comes up and what it means to be built by black women and for black women and being midwives of culture for grace and truth is that we don't agree on everything, (laughs) you know, but we can still have communion. We can still be in community. We can still be in fellowship and love one another. You know, um, and you're just not going to hear us having knockdown dragouts. That's not what we do. We just don't do knockdown dragouts, even behind the scenes. That's just not what we do. We're not caddy women. That's not what we do at Truth's Table. We're going to always try to honor one another, be respectful, and try to find a course forward or a way forward, you know, where there's disagreement or there's a fork in the road, you know, so which is inevitable in any uh, friendship, really, in a, any real friendship. I love that. Let me put it that way, you know? So I would say that's something that, you know, I think uh, that just came to mind. And I just like, I was like, oh yeah. We got our, we got a little, you got got to listen to our analysis to hear the whole thing. It's not like we like shut it down. We, you know, we got to, you know, we got some nuance, got some nuance.
1: (laughs) I want to end every interview by asking my guests this question and I'll let each of you answer it for yourselves. We are called Viral Jesus for a reason. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is for us today? Either of you want to take a stab at that first? That's a great question. Um, I think Thank that, you. yeah. And
3: I always, I love knowing the, you know where the name of a podcast, like a particular yeah, show, cool. comes from. Yeah, it's good history. Um, and I believe very deeply in doing what Jesus did, um, and knowing that you ain't gonna be him, and that's by God's design. <laughs> so, um, Jesus. Gave us on the 14th chapter of John, I think he said, greater things you will do. I have to go away. I need to leave. I need to get out of here. I need to send the advocate, the helper, the comforter, the guide. Uh, And for many, for many, many, many of us, the Holy Spirit has not been enough. Because, you know, they're invisible, you know, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it's the Mm -hmm. ghost of Jesus. And so I would encourage people uh, to hold, to cling to the words of the Lord who said, you will do greater things in your context, beyond your context, the things that held Jesus back, literally logistically, in the ancient Near East are things that uh, have not held us back for some time. And so to have care and humility with the story of a man who said, I came to save the world and not to condemn the world, and then to look at the history of Christendom and see how we have come to save, to serve, and to refresh and to nourish, to offer communion. Have we offered communion or have we offered condemnation? Uh, These are the ways that we can dig back into the story of a Christ who told us we would do bigger and better and more and gave us the spirit to do so across so many dividing lines. Um, For me, that's through the lens of blackness. Always has been, always will be. And for a lot of our other brothers, sisters, Siblings, It will be through the lens of their own context. Mm. So I, I like to follow the words and the path of Jesus in context. He preached at the Pharisees. He healed the sick in his community. He did what he could do for brown skinned Palestinians. And so for me, that is looking at Jesus and saying, I want to live in a way that brings material condition change to Black people. I want to live in a way that liberates the most oppressed and that strengthens and lifts up those who have been the most exploited. And I think people working in their context through a theology of divine humility to commune and not condemn, uh, that's the strongest way, I think, to hold people accountable and to invite them into salvation. Love that, Akamene.
2: Yeah, uh so good. Um that was a good ditto to what Michelle said. <laughs> um, the end. No, um, I was <laughs> I would say, you know, um, yeah, as you were thinking, I was like, oh, I so many ways to describe Jesus. My, I mean, so many names, so many names. I mean, right. um, you know, when I think about what Jesus came to do, was sent, you know, here to do um by his father, I just think about I don't know. I think about King Jesus, you know, King Jesus came to do cosmic battle Mm. against evil, against the devil, against sin, you know, in all its forms, you know. Um, and, and I, I hope by God's grace. And so, and, and, and he did that, Mm -hmm. So he did did justice and righteousness. Right. You know, uh, you know, and so he there's like no there's no um, like real there's dichotomies in God, but there's 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 no there's no um, hypocrisy or like tension. Like God is both God and man. It's tension for us because we got finite minds. So we're like, how is he the lion and the lamb? How's he the Alpha right. and Omega? I don't get it. Like, you know what I'm saying, like, you know, um, how can he be a man but then sinless? Like, that's not possible. You know, that's what we think. You know, yeah. this is our finite mind, but there's no tension in God. That's not hard. Like, you know, that's not hard for God. It's just for, hard for us to fathom. And so, it's and um, so when I think about the fact that He came to do this, this uh, uh, um, to to put sin to death, to do away with sin. Um, and did that while upholding both justice and righteousness together. They hold hands. You know what I mean? The, the foundation of God's throne is justice and righteousness. So I, um, I I try to think, I hope I'm joining in that work <laughs> uh, by holding together what seems like attention for me, because I'm finite, right? It seems like those things can be in tension, but they're not. And so in doing that, in a way, and even in even in this book, you know, where we're talking about sin, colorism is a sin. Yeah, you, know, you know what I mean. It is a sin that mm. black men and uh, are locked up, you know, away because of a, a, of a systemic plan to put them away mm. as a continuation of U.S. chattel slavery. That is a sin. <laughs> that is clear oppression, systemic racism. Right? You know what I mean. Like so, the things that we're lifting up here. The, 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 um, the lynching of Michael Brown, sin, it's all sin. Mm-hmm. You know, and so being able to, uh, uh, to make that claim, to make that clear, but then also walk circumspectly, right? You know what I mean? To so also uh, hopefully uh, uh, do so in a way where you're, you're living a, a life in which you bear the fruits of the spirit. And so hopefully you're bearing so much fruit that people can pick off of your fruit tree and they can eat self-control and they can eat kindness mm. and they can eat gentleness. And then, you know, and they can just, they can eat from the tree that you're producing, right? And hopefully you're walking in grace. God willing, you're walking in truth. Like, you know what I mean? And so like, so I'm, I'm trying to do those things. And then I'm also thinking about like, ah, but over yonder, what awaits us? That great city that's going to come on down, the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus is gonna come back and he is going to do away with sin, with death, with misery, Mm. with oppression. You know, I just we are we are just going through so much. And we need a savior. Amen. And we have the answer. And we need Jesus to crack the sky like now. Yeah. to come and rescue us, uh, because we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. Um, and that's why I do think it's important that the, the end of the book ends with this eschatological vision of what awaits us.
1: Yeah, um,
2: I'm doing it, of course, like, um, like um, Michelle said, in the context of, of course, our people. That's who I'm called, called to. God's given me a heart for our people, I mean, not, not that he hasn't given me heart for other people now, come on now. But but, but, <laughs> but that's, you know, this is my calling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, uh, my passion is uh, I have a Pan-African, you know, ethic and passion, you know, to see us um, thrive and to do well, you know, and to help to loosen the bonds and the shackles um, that entangle us and have entangled us for so long. And so I cast that vision Of glory that awaits us, you know, um, that awaits all of us that have just been through so much um, and who have been on the underside and the undertow of not just American history, but just, I'd say the undertow of just straight white supremacy globally. What does that look like for us? You know, and I cast that vision of us around the throne of the thrice holy God saying, "Holy, holy, 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 holy. And being reunited with one another, you know, into yeah. fellowship as co-heirs, as friends of God, no longer enemies. Thank God. Thank God for Jesus. So thank God for Jesus. Thank God for our viral Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I could go on and on honestly, but uh, yeah, I, I I see myself honestly as an evangelist, and so um, a lot of what I do with Truth Table, getting the word, writing is it, it's an evangelistic. Project, <laughs> With
1: people, you know, and we do care about these things. Thanks to and Michelle for joining us for this week's episode.. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral Homework. I have some pretty specific homework for you this week and I hope you actually take the time to do these little activities that I put at the end of the show or just take in the stories that I'll tell you in this section because I'm an educator and I know that it's incredibly important to not just listen to somebody else talk about something that you're trying to learn about but actually to participate. Participation is crucial in whether or not we retain information. So I want you to go to YouTube and watch a TED Talk. This is your homework. I want you to go to YouTube and watch a TED Talk by Kimberly Crenshaw called The Urgency of Intersectionality. I want you to be aware of the term intersectionality and how it plays out in minority populations, but specifically in this episode, we are going to look at how it impacts Black women. Intersectionality is a term created by Crenshaw that shows how if you're standing in the path, multiple forms of exclusion. You are likely to get hit by both. It is a really fascinating talk and I invite you to watch it. I teach at one of the most diverse universities in the nation. I think it's number one or number two, most diverse universities in the nation. And my students who are often minorities still sit shocked when I show them this TED Talk. And we watch and do the exercises that Kimberly Crenshaw will walk you through as you watch it. So please go to YouTube and type that in, The Urgency of Intersectionality. I would also invite you to read the article by Katherine Freeman called The Hidden Figures of the Church. It is on our Christianity Today website. You can just type it into Google, that title. And I also invite you to subscribe to Truce Table podcast, buy their book, and just make a conscious effort to see Black women and learn from their perspective. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson-Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we talk to author Ashley Hales. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks, and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.